All right, how's it going? Uh, welcome to the Nine Yards podcast. I uh, hope you had a good weekend. Um, for those of you that watched the Champions League final last night, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I did, but slightly hungover today, so please bear with me. This week is going to be slightly different. I'm going to be talking, well, kind of about the IRA. Uh, but I won't go into it too much. You can wait until the podcast really gets underway. Just a few quick plugs before I get started. Uh, my website is nineyardspod.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, you can follow me on Twitter at nineyardspod. And please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star rating and a review if you would be so kind. Because I only have two at the moment. <laughs> and uh, I think one of them's from my mum and the other one is from someone else. I don't know who they are but thank you but yeah obviously those will really help so if you enjoy the the podcast please please head over and do that okay so without further ado let's get on with the podcast Our perceptions often differ wildly from reality. Or is it rather that reality itself is entirely subjective? We can agree that something is objectively true. We can use logical deduction, mathematics, we can theorize. But all of that, no matter which way you frame it, is also intrinsically linked to human perception. Whether or not we gather data via our senses, machines, or any other method, ultimately it all must run through this filter our brains determine the things we accept as truth. If ever there was an undisputable fact, that surely is it. This may seem like an odd way to start a podcast about the Irish Republican Army, or to be more accurate given the period of history I will be focusing on, the provisional Irish Republican Army, that from now on for obvious reasons I will refer to by their more well-known moniker, the IRA, but as is my intention going forward, this will not be a brief history or a deep dive rather an attempt to look at any given topic from my own perspective, through my own filter, and during the process to hopefully learn more about said topic, and if I'm lucky, maybe more about myself too. After all, I'm not a historian, not a philosopher, not an anthropologist. I only have my own subjective experience to draw upon. So why not run with it? I actually had thought about going into some detail on the history of the IRA, but anyone who is even remotely familiar with the subject will probably nod their head knowingly when I say, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, it's complicated. And not just complicated, as most histories are, but deeply nuanced. Very difficult to tell without in some way having to pick a side, or at the very least having to constantly add caveats as to appear like I'm not picking a side. I just wouldn't feel comfortable approaching the subject from this angle. Not only because the more recent history of the Troubles is still a very fresh wound for many, but also because I don't believe it's possible to tell the story of the IRA without going back at least 400 years, perhaps longer, perhaps much longer really. I would need to dedicate an entire podcast series in the vein of Dan Carlin to the telling of that story, and I have neither the will nor the expertise. I can, however, summarise my own perceptions of the IRA as a kid growing up in England in the 1980s and how that differs to what I've learned about them now that I'm all grown up and I've read a few books. The reason I believe this is podcast worthy 
is because I see it as a good example of an often terrible aspect of the human condition. What we learn as children can radically impact our worldview, even though it may be a very twisted and biased version of events, or sometimes even outright lies. Our perception of a thing can alter dramatically over time. Spin 180 degrees and back again when we learn more about it. Your perception, even though we've both observed exactly the same thing, may vary wildly from mine, so wildly that we may argue about which of us perceived the truth. You have your biases, I have mine. The orange have theirs, and so do the greens. Neither are true, neither are false, but rather a combination of the two. Make no mistake though, they both can lead to a lot of spilt blood. I grew up in the 1980s in a neighbourhood called St Paul's in a city called Bristol. It was a good neighbourhood, a tight community. I was an only child in a single parent family, as were most of my friends. Mum raised me, Dad wasn't around much, but back then that didn't really bother me. I had a good childhood. My memory of it is full of happy moments playing with friends, getting up to mischief and travelling Europe with my mum. When it comes to my recollection of the troubles during the 1980s, they are few and far between, but the ones I do have stayed with me. I remember fairly regular news coverage, but not the kind of focus you'd expect considering the proximity of Ireland. The focus on the English news at the time when I really started paying attention, in the late 80s, was on the bombing campaign the IRA had undertaken outside of Ireland. There had been some high-profile bombings in the early and mid-80s too, but it wasn't until then that anything you could really call a campaign had truly gotten underway. As one might expect, the news coverage in England was very biased. Nothing ever mentioned of British troops' alleged shoot-to-kill policy in Northern Ireland, no historical context for why these scary-looking men in black balaclavas were carrying out bombings on English soil. From my perspective as a naive and innocent child, the IRA were bad guys, and the news coverage I regularly witnessed at 6pm every day, once I'd gotten home from school and the kids' shows had ended, usually around the time my mum served dinner, certainly did nothing to dissuade this perception of the Irish men and women fighting for their freedom in the only way they knew how and arguably with the only real methods available to them. I have some recollection of seeing English politicians speaking on the subject too, and that was the only thing that really gave me pause at that age. I could sense a fellow bullshit artist, as many children can. Some hardwired sense we are far more in tune with as youngsters tingles when faced with insincerity. So when I heard the words of British politicians on the subject of the IRA and the Troubles, I knew I was being lied to, I just didn't know why, and to be honest I didn't care. Hearing one group of bad guys telling lies about another group of bad guys wasn't enough to alter my perception of the latter. I remember Jerry Adams, thinking he looked like a serious man and somewhat sinister. Ian Paisley I remember mostly from the spitting image skits, a show my mum was a big fan of. To me it all just seemed messy and complicated, which of course it was, and it is no fault of the British media that they were not able to provide nuance and detail in short news summary programmes. The bias of the British media though, the willingness to toe the line of the ruling conservative government. That is certainly a charge that can be justifiably levelled at them. I don't think though that the bias was specifically anti-IRA. My perception is that it was more just anti-Irish. The IRA was simply the most extreme product of a nation divided not only by a literal border, but also by religious segregation and increasing radicalisation. The sentiment of many English politicians of the time, or certainly the ones I remember, was that we would give them back their bloody country if we could, but we can't and it's not our fault. 
Ian Paisley's lot, the Orange Order and the Loyalist paramilitaries were really the ones to blame, and in the best interests of all parties, we must begrudgingly remain involved in the conflict. After all, we British are the only ones that truly know what's best for the Irish, right? I was not aware at the time of how accurate this perception was, but it was just a sense that Britain would gladly rid herself of the Irish nuisance if possible, but sadly it was not. Though I wasn't as a child, I am now aware of how privileged I was not to have grown up in a war zone. My mother was born in Belfast but never lived there, and that's the only known link I have to the place. The only real parallel I can draw from my life to those growing up in the areas of Northern Ireland affected by the Troubles is that we're all victims of one form of indoctrination or another. My only direct experience of anything Irish as a child was occasionally meeting my best friend's dad, who yes, happened to be Irish. Other than that, all I recall is a sense that Ireland and the Irish were in some way lesser than England and the English. Where this sense came from, I don't quite know. Perhaps playground jokes, perhaps what I saw on the news. It certainly was not something that was ever said to me explicitly, and don't get me wrong here, it's not like I ever actually had that exact thought. I didn't think, the English are so much better than the Irish. It was just a strange sense of superiority whenever Ireland or Irish people were mentioned. Mind you, this subtle yet pervasive sense of superiority was not kept solely for Ireland, but rather for most nations of the world, perhaps most forcefully against the French, and it's not too hard to figure out why that is. England, once the heart of the great British Empire, still to this day suffers from a kind of post-colonial hangover, an inability to accept the fact that we are no longer the greatest and most powerful nation in the world, but instead some kind of steadfast belief that we still are, a prime example of this is the history we were taught, or rather not taught in school. Forget the early years of school, but in my teenage years I learned very little about Ireland, about India, about Kenya. And everything I did learn was from old, out-of-date books, and very much through the lens of Britain as a once great colonial power. The enemies of the British Empire were often demonised, or at best portrayed as noble fools. The good deeds of the British Empire were greatly overplayed and the many atrocities either swept over or not mentioned at all. That is, at least in my opinion, a form of indoctrination. Clearly a world apart though from the kind of indoctrination many young girls and boys faced growing up in Northern Ireland. Where the religion their parents followed and the road they were born on would not only dictate their worldview, but which side they would take in an ongoing and bloody war. Religion in Northern Ireland was and is so closely linked to politics that even to this day it can be hard to distinguish the two. But still, the subtle superiority complex that English society embeds in the brains of children is very real, and as history has shown us, can also have devastating consequences. Among my many privileges was the freedom to break myself out of that programming. That I was subject to this form of indoctrination had no real bearing on the trajectory of my life. I didn't reach my adult years with the view of Britain implanted in my brain as a child still intact. It didn't impact any of my more meaningful life choices. The same can't be said for many of the children of Northern Ireland, during and also in the decades leading up to the Troubles. Due largely to the scars left by hundreds of years of British interference and tyranny, Ireland was partitioned, divided, fractured in every meaningful way possible, culturally, religiously, politically. Even when British troops were sent once again into Ireland, before the Troubles had truly gotten underway, they had a chance to quell the violence, but instead initiated a brutal internment policy which involved the torture of many innocent people. 
This tactic, it would later be suggested, they had learned in Kenya when carrying out their horrific campaign of slaughter against the Mau Mau, who had had the audacity to revolt against their British colonial rulers. A slaughter that would later prove to have been thoroughly pointless for the empire, as Kenya was given its independence shortly after regardless. The internment policy in Northern Ireland did little but aid in the radicalisation of its population. Before it, the IRA had been a fringe group with not many members, but imagine army troops burst through your door one day, abduct the young men, innocent of any crime, and lock them up without charge, whereupon they are subject to starvation, beatings and torture. What effect would that have on your view of this army that are supposedly there to help stop the violence? Would you still think them benevolent? Shrug your shoulders and say, well, these things happen, it was a necessary evil. Or would your pre-existing suspicions come to the surface? Would the anti-British propaganda, a lot of it based on fact by the way, you'd heard and read, suddenly start to make a lot more sense? Would any doubt you'd had of them being a malignant presence seem so much more implausible? These questions are rhetorical of course, nobody can answer a hypothetical like that honestly. The truth is, we never really know how we will respond until we are faced with that reality ourselves. At best, we can make an educated guess based on past reactions, but without having lived it, we never really know. It is safe to say, though, that the British Army's presence in Ireland at the dawn of the Troubles did nothing but exacerbate the problem and radicalise both sides even further. Obviously, I didn't realise that as a child, but this again leads me on to the subject of perception. Whether or not the British Army had malign intentions or not is irrelevant. Through their actions, or rather the perception of their actions, they plunged an already volatile situation right off the edge of a cliff. There is more than enough evidence to suggest that the British Army's intentions when entering Ireland at the start of the Troubles and in the following decades wasn't entirely benign though. British officers themselves have admitted to going in with the intention of operating like a paramilitary gang, to break rules, to use subversive methods of infiltration and to play both sides against each other. And that, or so it would seem, they did to great effect. Now I've talked a little about my simplistic perceptions of the IRA when I was young, I want to move on to how I view them now. Now I'm a little older, very marginally wiser and obviously I've read a few books. I'm certainly not well educated on the subject though, but I have learnt enough to know that the notion of the British government and military as some kind of benevolent force during the Troubles, a notion touted heavily by the media at the time, is beyond laughable. I have learnt that Ireland is a beautiful place, that the Irish people are as wonderful and awful, funny and boring, diverse and complicated of character as the people of any other nation in the world. I have learnt to disregard stereotypes, to acknowledge my own privilege, and to be self-aware enough to shed the post-colonial conditioning I received as a child. I am aware of the many horrors perpetrated in the name of Britain, and I condemn them wholeheartedly. I am proud to be Bristolian. I am proud to be English, proud to be British, proud to be European, proud to be human. But I am not and never will be a nationalist, in any traditional sense. British nationalism has a well-earned stigma attached to it. Even saying those two words out loud conjures in my mind images of bigotry and violence, of hatred and ignorance. Does that mean I shouldn't be proud of where I come from though? Surely there has to be a way of separating the pride one feels towards their place of birth, their nation and their fellow countrymen, away from the notion of nationalism that has been so well co-opted by not only right-leaning post-colonial governments, but also by far-right extremists. I believe it is possible, but I don't have that solution to hand.
Perhaps it's something I can talk about in another podcast, I don't know. Ireland remains separated still, and there is still some sporadic violence. With Brexit looming, there are fears that the troubles may spark once again. I hope this is not the case, but I realise that despite the lasting peace that I've known for all my adult life, Northern Ireland still lives under the real threat of violence returning to her streets. The IRA has never gone away. Though the fighting men of the Troubles will be ageing now, they are still there and more than capable of organising once again if things ever do heat up. Though I am certainly sympathetic towards their root motivations, though their ambitions seem noble, their methods and what they actually achieved through them remain morally ambiguous for me. All that fighting and bloodshed for what? Very little it seems. Northern Ireland remains partitioned, remains part of Britain and almost certainly will for as long as her voting majority are loyalist Protestants. I believe one aspect of truth in British media coverage during the Troubles was that Britain would have handed Northern Ireland back many years ago if it weren't for this fact. The dangers involved in Ireland being united once again outweighed those of her remaining divided. The main difference really between my view of the IRA now and then is my understanding of nuance. I no longer see them as bad guys in balaclavas, but rather products of their environment, guilty of deplorable acts and much unnecessary bloodshed, whilst also being victims of heinous crimes and a history of oppression. Despite what you may have heard from the mouths of religious and political zealots, or even from some true crime podcasters, evil does not exist. People can make deeply misguided, terrible, badly informed decisions that cause terrible suffering, all the while believing it is for a higher purpose, that they are doing the right thing. The toll of oppression, violence and war can lead to mass radicalization and can create spiraling tit-for-tat blood feuds that last decades, sometimes centuries. There is also the factor of mental illness. Those that suffer from certain disorders do particularly well, or particularly badly depending on your perspective, during war and times of extreme violence. As romantic an ideal as good versus evil is, sadly it doesn't exist. The truth is always much more grey than it is black and white. Our views are shaped by what we learn, and the things we learn as children have the biggest effect on our psyche. We can break our conditioning through education and will, but the more deeply embedded the idea, the harder it is to shake off. Be aware of that whenever you question the motivations of an individual or group you deem to be in some way bad or evil or monstrous. More often than not, you only need look at where they grew up how they were conditioned, what belief system they were indoctrinated into, to gain a much deeper understanding of how they perceive the world and what drives them to do such terrible things. So I hope you enjoyed that. Obviously this episode was scripted. Sorry it wasn't as long as the previous episode, but I hope you enjoyed it anyway. And as a side note, if you find the subjects of the IRA and the Troubles interesting and you want to learn more, I really recommend reading Say Nothing by Patrick Radden Keefe and War in an Irish Town by Eamon McCann. Uh, they are great books and great places to start learning about the IRA and the Troubles um, and I owe much of my thinking on this subject to those two books. So again please follow me on Twitter at Nine Yards Pod. Uh, check out my website NineYardsPod.com and yeah please leave me a rating. Okay see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah.